Hello, and welcome to Courage to Be, a podcast on becoming. This is episode number two. Today, we're going to spend time talking about mental health. Steve and I are going to discuss our conceptualization of mental health and our understanding and how this ties into spirituality and Buddhism in particular. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe uh, wherever you listen to your podcast and rate on Apple Podcasts to help us out a little bit. Also, feel free to check out the website for our RSS feed at couragetobepod.com. That also is tied into my private practice website as well, but that's a good place to find us. Um, and if you'd like to reach out and contact us, you can reach us at contact at couragetobepod.com. All right, let's get started. So this week, we're going to spend some time talking about mental health. Um, as we talked about in our last podcast, uh, Steve and I both are mental health clinicians. We have different trainings and backgrounds, but we do both have experience doing mental health work. And I thought it would be really good to start off this podcast with a series of questions that I ask students. Uh, it's a fun series of questions that whenever they're answering them, we find out that their answers change over time. It's something that we develop. Um, but it's something that I think is helpful to think about. So the first question, and I'll kind of hit on the high points real quick, and then we'll explore a little bit. The first question I tend to ask is, what is counseling? Because I'm training um, soon-to-be counselors. And inevitably, we talk about all kinds of things like, why are people going to counseling? Um, and it comes down to counseling is about helping people have mental health or be more mentally healthy. Uh, and I also think that counseling is about change. Uh, people come to counseling because they're needing to do something different uh, or their lives need to be different somehow. Um, and then that tends to go into the question of what is change, and we can have conversations around that. Um, I'm an existentialist, as I've mentioned in the last podcast. So to me, there's loss inherent with any change, good or bad. Um, if you're you know, getting married, you're losing you as a single person. There's always the two sides of things. Um, and then the other question that, it, that follows up with that, that I think is the one we'll dig into today, is what is mental health? Um, so those are some fun questions, but that last one, the what is mental health, I think is a really interesting one to dig into as we start off this journey that we're all going to be on. So Steve, I'll ask you that question. Sure. Um, you know, I was always taught, uh, mentored, instructed, bossed around by uh, the people that trained me, very psychodynamic group initially uh, with an existentialist and or humanist peppered in there. Uh, but uh, I was always taught that people come because they're stuck. They come to mental health work or seeking help because they get stuck. And then I was also trained and taught and instructed that they're not always aware of why they are stuck. They have maybe a dim sense of that or maybe a strong sense of it. But there's an element of confusion um, and or just not being aware of what's going on. A sense of just things aren't working out the way that we want them to. And so that being stuck leads me to wonder how to get them unstuck. And my training failed me to a certain extent because as a Native American, I really think that when we get stuck or when we struggle, we've lost our connection to world, others, even self. And then also as a Buddhist, uh, I think that what gets us in trouble is when we lose an ability to be in the moment and we get off balance. And I can elaborate that, uh, bounce it off of what uh, Chris Chris wants to share or say at this point. So in terms of mental health, 
Like, how would you define mental health? How would you know when a client's done with therapy? That sense of balance. And I, I always have time to let people reflect and digest what has happened and let me know how they're doing. And in that letting me know how they're doing, I typically guide to questions about balance and questions about being able to stay grounded, I would say, in the moment. This is, this is uh, interesting to talk about this because, you know, half of me comes from that, the training that I've received, but the other half of me, or maybe quarter of me, comes from Buddhist concepts. And I always think about uh, a teacher, Shantideva, who said that we're able to embrace the good, embrace the bad, and stay balanced. And so back to that idea of being balanced. I mean, you don't want to not be open to things, so you want to be open to things. And his uh, image was uh, be like a log, be stable and steady, and that way you can enjoy and also not... uh, I think when we get into aversion and dodging things, even though they're tough um, or painful, we, we lose something. So that idea of balance and, you know, when people can articulate that, talk about that, uh, maybe they won't have achieved it, whatever that means, but they can at least talk about having a sense of what that means. And then in the future, how they're going to maintain that so they're not uh, knocked off of balance or knocked into uh, depression or anxiety or whatnot. So for me, that that's that's what I would say, being able to be in the moment, keep that balance, receive life, whatever whatever life gives us. Great. Thank you for sharing that. There's some similarities uh, for sure from the way I see things. Um, if you had to, and and this is like the therapist question, when you meet somebody, you always say, what's your theoretical orientation, right? That's what we ask each other so we can make judgments about who and how the other person is before we actually get to know them. <laughs> um, but so if you were to say your theoretical orientation, what would you say that is? Basically psychodynamic. And I have to add cultural theory in there. And then the other the other thing is I can't shake, nor do I think I should have. I was told I should have at one point. I can't shake my Native American Buddhist blend. And to me, uh, you know, you help people get unstuck and you help people have insight, but to move them toward a more enlightened framework, a more uh, open way of looking at the world. And I, I think that we have to emphasize uh, interconnectedness and healthy attachments, and that's that's definitely Buddhist. But uh, so I would say more Buddhist psychology nowadays, with a little smattering of cultural theory and my Native American roots, and with an origin of psychodynamic, which um, a lot of folks, if they are not students or, or folks that have studied psychology, you know, that's Freud and Adler and Jung and those types of people, right? Yeah, if I would, if I were to. Uh, pick amongst those to complement how I look at things now, it would be more Jungian. Oh, I'm not surprised at all. <laughs> if I were going to be, you know, gun to my head, pick a, a pick a psychodynamic person, it'd be Jung as well. He's got some good stuff. So to speak a little bit about my end of it, my theoretical orientation, so to say, would be a lot of stuff based on Carl Rogers. Uh, the name of the podcast is based on one of his quotes, uh, The Courage to Be. Uh, I also, you know, am an existentialist. And what that means from a psychological perspective, at least how I understand it, is that the majority of people's problems come down to um, some kind of an interface of four existential concerns, that they're going to die and there's nothing they can do about it. It's going to happen. 
that there is no inherent meaning in life and we have the task of creating meaning, that we have the freedom to choose how we want to engage in the world and the responsibility to bear the weight of those choices, and um, that we are ultimately alone. There's isolation. And so from an existentialist perspective, we would say that whatever somebody comes into therapy with, it boils down to some combination of those four things. So that that was something that really, especially when I started, I really believed in. And then, you know, kind of a building on that, I've done a lot of work in looking at uh, emotion-focused affect work, an understanding of how emotions play into our decision process and into how we experience the world and the stories we create, because I think the stories we tell ourselves really matter, uh, and they really do impact how we go through the world. And so when we talk about what is counseling, it's all filtered through that. So for me, counseling is somebody coming in because they need they need things to be different. They need to change. Uh, inevitably, they think everybody else needs to change. And a lot of counseling is helping them understand that they're the only ones that can actually do anything different. And they have the freedom to do that and the responsibility to do that as well. And then change, as I said before, there's loss inherent in any change. So that's why when good things happen, we still feel mixed feelings about it. Um, change is very difficult. We all are forced to do it and none of us really want to. Uh, we do not tend to enjoy embracing change. And then as far as mental health, what is mental health? Um, this is how I know when clients are done. I, I think of it as adaptive functioning. People come in because they get rigidly held into patterns and into viewpoints and into ways that don't work for them anymore. And then our job is to try to help them understand things in a different way from my perspective, and then to um, be adaptive be flexible, be able to roll with what life gives them and be okay no matter what. Um, it's not to be happy because you can't always be happy. And I don't think that that's a very therapeutic goal. Um, but I, I do think that the adaptive flexibility piece is important. So just thoughts on that, Steve? Well, a lot. You know, when you talk about that adaptation back to the Buddhist framework or the Buddhist psychology framework, uh, I was going to ask you when you see that adaptability and that that uh, that health through adaptation. Do you see that as connected to how a person attaches emotionally and connects to things, and how they can maybe tend to the being more healthy in their attachments? And I, I can, uh, depending on your response, I could talk about how a Buddhist psychologist would come at that. Sure. So. Especially lately, I've been doing more and more attachment-based work. I think that a lot of people's issues are tied into um, attachment stuff, early life scripts. I think a lot of what hangs people up are things that, that was adaptive at one point um, and developed to help them survive their world and then stopped working for them later on down the road. Um, and so I think everything is tied into some level of attachment. I think we are all related. That's where I get a little different on the existential piece. And I've had some growth is the isolation. Um, I don't know how much I believe that anymore. I do think more and more that there is an interconnectedness um, that is not, there's not space for that in my understanding of existentialism. The rest of the stuff is great. Uh, but um, the whole we're alone and, and completely isolated, I think there's the veneer of that, but beneath the surface, there's an interconnectedness to everything. Um, so attachment then to kind of go back to that really does matter. How do we attach to people that are important to us? Uh, how do we attach to ideas and concepts and 
and, and all that, which I know we'll get more into. I think I'm kind of setting this up for you right now. So, Well, the attachment thing looms, looms large if you do engage in Buddhist practice. And certainly if you study Buddhist psychology, they're, they're a little bit different because we have to be careful of our attachments, else we get overly attached. And Buddhist principal teaching is we tend to walk down the road and if something uh, we are, we are, we don't like or perceive we don't like, we will avert it and pull back from it. Uh, if something happens internally, anxiety, we're not really taught to delve into that and lean into that and try and understand it. We're taught to kind of shut it down, get busy, hum a tune, buy something. And so the anxiety uh, is something we avert. And then somewhat mindlessly, in many cases, if we think we like something or something looks attractive, we go toward that and attach to it. So for me, both as a as a person and as a professional, it seems to me, and, and I train counselors now, and it, it's a sticking point, I'll be honest, because, you know, to say stay free and unattached creates, creates some turbulence in, in training these folks because, you know, most of our culture is built upon attaching and, you know, going toward the things we really like and stepping away from the things we don't like. But back to that idea of balance, that sets up an inability to be balanced and in the moment and therefore healthy. And then one more thing, uh, you know, as a Native person, I was reared in a collectivist culture. And, you know, Chris, when you talk about that interconnectedness, I think I've been let down by different schools of psychology because I haven't ever seen that really spoken to, embellished, uh, emphasized that we are interconnected and we are ultimately a collective. And that's why the Buddhist principles of interconnection and union and communion with things is so important, in my view, to what it means to be mentally healthy. And I think that does spring into your idea of that isolation. I mean, we know stats are, we're lonely, and we're getting more lonely. And if you really dug into that at an existential or a phenomenological level, I think there's a lot of pain and suffering with that loneliness, because we've lost that um, that understanding of we are collective and we are inter interconnected and we do need one another in a deep, intimate way. Yeah, I, I agree that I think connection is foundational um, and it's something that is really important and necessary for we are relational beings. I, I do believe that. And, and just to clarify for folks that don't get into the weeds as far as you and I do, phenomenological, by that you're meaning the study of experience. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, help me with my words, man. Hey, no problem. I, I we we uh we want to make this accessible to everybody. So another thing that's a fun question to ask, and this is one that I ask when people are trying to figure out what their orientation is in terms of theory, is what do you think the cause of psychological distress is? What do you think causes distress? Well, I think uh, there, there's a two level answer to that, and one is that we always. Well, I shouldn't say that, but routinely, we want things to be other than they are. And we brush up against things not being like we want them or wanting them to be different. And there's where the psychological pain, if not suffering, begins. And then I think the second piece to my answer is that, um, that disconnection. Uh, I think that's fundamental. And existentialists do talk about loneliness and isolation and... Uh, you know, breaking out of that and understanding and defining self by your own terms. 
But I think more and more in the mechanized world, in the industrialized world, uh, we've lost something, a connection to nature, connection to the collective. And so I think there's a soul wound, as some people have talked about, because of that isolation. I mean, when you think of, you know, how we spend our time week to week, it isn't uh, necessarily seeking communion. It's more a matter of uh, egotism. Uh, I, me, me, mine. And I, I do think that's the cause of a lot of pain and suffering. That makes a lot of sense. You know, you're talking about collectivist cultures versus individualized cultures. Um, one of the ways that I've heard of that being expressed that really resonated with me back when I was a student in my master's program was that, you know, in a lot of, in a lot of you know, um, Western cultures, we talk about having a family. But in a lot of Eastern cultures, they talk about belonging to a family. And the difference between having and belonging in terms of what the focus is and having I am the focus and in belonging, I'm part of something bigger. And so um, to kind of run with my view on this, and this is really foundational stuff that I think gives framework for what we're, what we're talking about as we go along. So as far as psychological distress goes, Carl Rogers would say that you have the ideal self, who you want to be and how you would like to be seen and the real self, who you actually are. And when they're incongruent, that causes psychological distress. And so a part of what you're doing in therapy is trying to see yourself as you actually are. So that's pretty foundational to, to the way that I see things and the way that I work. I also think that we do also develop emotional maps that are maladaptive through our, our development, uh, through our attachments, through our uh, primary relationships. And these scripts get fired up before we even have conscious thought. Those emotions um, cause us to react in ways that may not be healthy. And this, to me, also ties into a lot of the studying that I've been doing with EMDR, um, eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing, and trauma work, and that we have these scripts that actually are wired into our physiological systems that pull us into fight, flight, or freeze. And these emotional maps activate that and pull us out of our prefrontal cortex, and we become reactive. And then that really affects the stories we tell ourselves. And so there's, you know, there's the multiple level of how do you understand things? How do you have the emotional reaction? How do you change that emotional reaction and heal those wounds? Um, and then how do you see things as they really are? See yourself as you actually are, not as that incongruence between who you want to be and who you actually are. So that's, you know, kind of my conceptualization of distress, um, there's a lot there. So basically, we don't see ourselves as we actually are. We see ourselves as we want to be. When that's not matching up, when we don't see ourselves accurately and congruently, that causes distress. And we also have all kinds of emotional maps and and traumas, big T traumas, capital T traumas, little t traumas, aversion, you know, adverse experiences, things like that, that that contribute to a lot of incongruence. So that congruence. Would you say that part of helping people to get better is helping them to find that congruence, experience that congruence? I really believe that what happens in therapy through the therapeutic relationship is that um, our clients come and see themselves differently in relationship with us. They come in thinking they're one way, and through the interactions with their therapist, they develop a better understanding, whether that's through insight or through different experience. Um, and they begin to see themselves more as they actually are. Yeah, I do think congruence is, you know, Maslow has his hierarchy of needs. Carl Rogers had his fully functioning person and being able to, if you're congruent, you can trust your internal experience mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and it's very adaptive and it's existentially living. It's being living in the moment and being aware as things are. The thing I thought about is the, the uh, teaching 
the Buddhist teaching by Shantideva of be like a log. Uh, and maybe that being like a log is getting that congruence, kind of owning it, reclaiming it, experiencing it, and operating from that point so that you aren't thrown off as much. Can you elaborate on the being like a log? Yeah, to not be mo- moved by, uh, and again, in, in Buddhist philosophy, to be moved away from things you should face, to be moved away from things that are aversive out of some sort of impulse to flight, uh, and as well embracing the good and not getting uh, too carried away by it, but just staying in the center and grounded, kind of the middle path. And it just occurred to me, kind of a nice thought, um, that maybe that incongruence being healed and becoming more congruent is part of what Buddhists talk about, about being in the moment and being able to walk that middle path and take good and take bad, however we label those, and keep moving and keep participating and being a part of the whole. That's Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and you know, be, being like a log is, isn't like, you know, uh, people that have read that and, and studied that lesson will often say, okay, be like a log. You know, but it's more in terms of just being steady. And it just occurs to me that that steadiness may very well be that claiming your congruence again through therapeutic change. That's really interesting. You know, I've not heard that quote before you brought that up. But one of the metaphors that I've been using in my own in my own brain as I've been going through things and trying to put, you know, this stuff into practice is that it's like I visualized myself standing in a river right? And there's all this stuff floating down the river and you can grab onto it and it can pull you or you can just notice it and let it go. I think I got that through um, some studies of meditation and it just kind of resonated beyond that for me as far as emotions and reactions. It's like you can notice it and be grabbed or you can just watch it and, and honor it for what it is and let it go. So that sounds like that log metaphor you're giving. Yeah. And I, I would add to that, that meditation actually takes one out of the river so they can look into the river and see both self and those things passing to and fro and around. Because I think when we meditate and there's body work we can do, I think yoga can achieve this. I've heard folks who do serious, serious Tai Chi, um, which is moving meditation, but you know, people that are, you know, doing this hours a day or maybe at least an hour a day, uh, they often say they've, you take yourself out of the the cognitive, neurocognitive states and actually create a calm state. So you're looking at the river and you can actually view self and and give the brain time to, the brain and consciousness time to calm down. And uh, so I would add to that that meditation can enhance that where you see things and you just see them and you let them pass. One thing that I will disclose, I'm terrible at meditating, especially the classic Mindfulness, focusing on your breathing, meditating. Shame on you, Chris. I know. I'm still still in practice, still <laughs> I, in process. I tease, I tease, yeah. Yeah, I can do, I can, I can find flow in playing music. I can do things, um, you know, like walking meditation, things like that, a lot easier. But the sitting there and focusing on the breathing, um, I struggle with that still. Well, I, you know, uh, I've been redoing um, reading now for a couple of years around evolutionary psychology and Buddhism. And that idea of calming the busy mind, the monkey mind, down through meditation. And, and frankly, I think the music, uh, the walking, it, I mean, we each have our own. It doesn't have to be breath meditation, but it's a way of giving the neurocognitive system and consciousness a break uh, to where you can be more healthy and more grounded. But uh, 
Yeah, there's a there's a, a number of writings that talk about how we've evolved to be negative. We've evolved to evaluate threat and the ways that we can break that and stop that being a driving force to where we create negative stories is through being mindful and through some sort of meditative work. Well, and even using like a singing bowl when I'm trying to do focus meditation in a more traditional way of focusing on maintaining pitch and things like that. Um, and also part of the reason why I struggle with this and, and Steve and I have spoken about this before is, and again, for me, the spirituality piece comes more from that sh- more shamanistic, the Buddhism is more secular, uh, focusing on breath work almost felt like it left me too, um, open, if that makes any sense, like too psychically open. And I didn't like that feeling. So, um, that's part of the reason why I like to be a little bit more focused on what I'm doing for meditation. Yeah. Well, and a lot of times we, we, we folks from the West have a hard time with sitting meditation. And some meditation trainers, uh, teachers have often emphasized that maybe you want to start with movement like walking or some sort of practice that is uh, not just sitting. You know, it's just, it's one form uh, and it tends to work really well for me. And I know it's also been said that people who do develop a serious sitting meditation hit points where they crave it, want it, because it tends to have that calming effect and that clearing effect. I'm probably probably simplifying it. but um, And I do think the evolutionary codes are for us to worry, you know, to evaluate for threat. I mean, there's reams of data on that. And I think that can create incongruence in... Uh, in the way we have constant stress and threat. Uh, we're not, you know, worried about a, another mammal eating us up anymore, but for a long time we were programmed to evaluate, scan, pay attention, and now we have more chronic low-grade stressors. And so I think anything you can do to calm and engage uh, a holistic brain, uh, it does defeat evolution to some extent and creates a calm, congruent existence. We are certainly wired to watch for threat. Oh, for sure. For sure. Great stuff. Um, so we we talk about psychological distress and we talk about um, adaptive functioning and why people come to counseling and all these sorts of things. And really what that boils down to is, you know, what um, the the concept of suffering and so um, I think digging into that would be pretty helpful. And Steve, do you want to talk a little bit about that concept in general from a Buddhist perspective? I, I want to say before I talk about it that it was uh, coming to grips with uh, the Buddhist concept of suffering, and the Four Noble Truths, was pivotal in my own life. And, you know, training these counselors that I train and now that I teach undergrad psychology, it shifted me out in, in, a, in a way that I hope is beneficial to my students Uh, in training and teaching them how to help people to get better mentally and emotionally. But um, the Four Noble Truths are, again, basic Buddhist teachings. And the very first truth, uh, noble truth, is that life is based upon dukkha, uh, or there's a truth to life that says we all suffer. And this truth um, speaks to how we, you can't avoid pain. And I, th- I think of, you know, training students to do interventions and what, and, you know, how, how do you bring this topic up? Uh, but I think it is really beneficial because pain is a part of life. And I think much suffering occurs because we uh, deny that and avoid that. There's really no way, Buddhists say, that you can get away from pain. 
And that can that leads to suffering, but much of suffering that creates mental anguish, emotional struggle, depression maybe, uh, is the fact that we heap on uh, distortions of reality. And again, one of the main distortions is life is going to work out for us. We should be happy. You alluded to that earlier, Chris. And the reality is the Buddha taught that life is equatable with suffering. And everybody says it's kind of a downer. Oh, my goodness. But then you talk about ways to liberate from that suffering, and that's what creates the balance and the uh, internal equanimity or the internal balance. And, you know, Buddhist teaches a lot, Buddhist teach a lot about self-love and self-acceptance, but that hinges back on understanding that you can't avoid pain and you can't avoid suffering. To go back, I, I think it's good to talk about the difference between pain and suffering. Um, so in, in some of the study that I've done, there, there are three types of suffering, and Steve and I will unpack this. Um, there, the first one is the suffering of suffering, and that's pain. That's just you know physical pain, things that are expected. Um, there's also the suffering of change, and that's um, the idea that we want things to stay exactly as they are, not change. And when we suffer, when it doesn't work out that way, and then there's the all pervasive suffering. There's the suffering of the stories we tell ourselves and, and it's how we pile on. Um, and, and, you know, Steve, you talked before, um, in some of our conversations about this, like two arrow story that, that really illustrates this. And I've came across that in some of Tatnat Han's one of his books as well. Do you want to elaborate on that idea of the arrows? Yeah, and so, and so the the arrow is the pain of life, and we can stop the suffering by simply calmly, peaceably, and simplistically removing the arrow instead of creating stories, adding different interpretations of why it happened. And this, to me, overlaps with a lot of our uh, cognitive therapy. We get into either negative attributions about self or maybe negative attributions about other people, so that negativity bias, and all that's extra. All that just creates more burden than need be. Oh, absolutely. You mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy. If you look at rational emotive behavior therapy, one of the precursors, uh, the classic ABC, you know, you have the activating event, you have the belief about the event and the consequent emotion. And the way you remedy that is by disputing the belief and changing the emotion. And so it's that belief is the second arrow. Um, it, I mean, it really ties right into that that cognitive behavioral cognitive behavioral approach, um, and I think that you know it's really hard to see things as they actually are. Perception is interesting in any interaction. I was talking about this uh, with one of my students. Um, with any interaction, you have your perception, you have the other person's perception, then you have your perception of their perception, and they have their perception of your perception, and it gets really muddy really quickly. And all of these are stories we're telling ourselves about any given situation. And so one of the things that can be really helpful just practically is to stop and say, is this true? How do I know this is true? Whatever's coming into your mind, whatever story you're telling yourself, is it true? How do I know? And, and if it's not true or if it's not knowable, then, you know, treat it as if it is just what it is and, and, and accept it. Yeah, one of the most profound teachings I was fortunate to be a part of was uh, the, the teachings on uh, only don't know mind. And it's, it's a Zen Buddhist set of teachings. And it's basically when you really boil it down, we don't know much about anything. and 
then that leaves us to add and to project. And so when you really, really look at what happens to us that leads to pain, painful events, uh, basically all we know is something caused us pain. Uh, and and from there, we start to add those, you know, heap it on. And the example I always think of is uh, I, I, I have a hard time with road rage. I, I tell my kids, you know, dad's a Buddhist, but Give him, give him some space with this road rage thing. I mean, I don't have road rage, but I do struggle with being cut off. And if you watch yourself when that happens, many of us anyway, uh, we, we immediately go into some sort of, you know, jerk or, you know, you know, how arrogant. You have no knowledge of what's going on in that person. Maybe they're headed to a, a serious uh, uh, event or maybe they're, they're rushing because there's been an accident. But And that is so... We do that so quickly, and that is such a cause of suffering. And the, the and teacher that first gave me this lesson said, you know, you sit there and you're mad at the guy that cut you off, but he's not thinking about you. So who suffers there? You. He's off doing whatever, you know, whatever he's going to do. And so I think that so subtly uh, creeps up on us before we know it. And we may not be loud, but it's there, just that that quick quick story about negativity that we we evoke. And going back into some of that evolutionary psychology, I think we're wired to look for it to be bad for us because that keeps us safe, right? And so that story that gets pulled up so quickly is the one that's going to keep us safe. The, they are terrible. They're horrible. We need to stay away from them. We need to react in an angry way or, or whatever. Uh, but in truth, we don't know. Like you said, it could be they could be, have somebody dying in the back of the car. And if that's the story, we feel very different than if they were just being a jerk and cutting us off. This, this hinges on a, a lot of Buddhist teachings in this in this uh, in this vein, are about acceptance. You know, just accepting what's there in your immediate experience, and not again add a story. Uh, I think our stories, as you say earlier, Chris, are critically important psychologically, but in the vein of trying to alleviate suffering, I think acceptance is better than heaping on those automatic stories, which I think are evolutionary conditioned in us. You're right on with that. I also think our, our uh, back to an earlier point in our conversation, I also think until we really, if we could ever really understand we are all interconnected and that things are truly impermanent. Things change all the time. I think we would be less culturally prone to to create that negativity and project it inward and outward. I think those two concepts are really fundamental and foundational. Um, and I would like to dig into those a bit more uh, before we end this podcast. The, the concepts of impermanence and interdependence. Can you elaborate a little bit more? Sure. Um, and again, it's, it's a basic teaching that when we really stop all the stories and the projections, uh, calm the mind, we will encounter the truth uh, that we are interconnected. And one of the best ways I have deepened my appreciation of that is when you take a breath in meditation, uh, you're connected to the universe because you're, you're breathing in, you know, you know, you're oxygenating and you're exhaling. And if you look at it from a certain slant, you need that air, you need that oxygen, you need that cycle, because without it, you would cease to exist. And so you're interconnected at that level. Uh, when we look at uh, how many things we share uh, with other species versus seeing differences, 
uh, we're, we're interconnected. And so the, the interconnectivity is, is a matter, uh, okay, now I'm struggling. The, the being interconnected is a truth and a reality we come to by calming the mind. And th this is subjective, but many, many people have said that, that they find this, this peace, this bliss, this compassion, where they start to appreciate that we're not individuated. And it's just a matter of opinion that we are individuals and separate from one another. One of the ways that I've heard that illustrated that I thought was really helpful um, was, you know, you look at, I'm holding a book right now. And in this book is so many different things. There's the paper that makes it, right? And then in that paper, I guess we're talking about interconnectedness. You know, it, there's the tree and there's the air and there's the water and there's the sun and there's the soil. And then there's all the things that created that. And it's like everything is contained within this book, right? Um, and, and so, and, and the same with us, you know, we have our genetics and we have our parents and our grandparents and our great grandparents. And then if we have children, we have that being carried down through the lineage. You know, there's, there's connection, um, throughout and in any given moment, we are the sum of our parts to this point and then we change. Yeah. And that gets into the impermanence that things are always changing. Uh, one of the lessons that I really, uh, have a, have a, affinity to is the idea that you're not the same person now. We aren't the same people, entities now that we were when we got up this morning. If you look at cellular change or biochemical change, you know, pharmacolog, you know, what's in our brains, we're not the same. Cells have died, cells have shedded, DNA is replicated, and we're not the same. And it's a matter of, you know, kind of cultural focus that we emphasize how different we are versus another world that would have us understand how impermanent we are. And so we're not individuated to the extent that we think. So we are more connected. And then the second piece that helps us with suffering is understand that things change. Things are impermanent. Well, and I think we have a lot of distress about we have this definition of who we are. And we hold on to that definition of who we are so tightly that we do not allow for it to change. And we have an idea and a definition of how we are, who we are, how things are supposed to be. And that's it. And then when it doesn't work out that way, then we are really struggling. When in reality, it changes. As you said, we're changing on a momentary basis. We're different than we are before. And so one of the things I tell clients is that, of course, you are as you are. How could you be any different with everything that brought you to this point? And it's time to change. You do the best you can until you can do better Then you do better. I often say, uh, you're going to change one way or the other. Why not be deliberate about it? Oh, that's great. You know, own own some things and uh, let, let's have some authorship here versus just letting things change you and push you along. And I think that's a it can can be an immense point of efficacy and that congruence you talk about. I can help create my own story, my own narrative, and I don't have to be pushed around by these external events. I think that taking ownership of the, the narrative that we tell ourselves is such a wonderful concept. On that note, I think it is time for us to stop for this week. I would like to thank you for listening to the Courage to Be podcast, a podcast on becoming. Um, as I said in the beginning, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and continue to listen. Also, feel free to email us at contact at courage to be pod.com. And please like or rate us on whatever platform you are using. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be talking to you soon. Thank you.